Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Trials with Maya Z, brought to you by TrialHub, a data intelligence platform that helps clinical research organizations and sponsors run clinical trials. This podcast is about how we can make clinical trials more successful and patient-friendly. I am your host, Maya Z, and in every episode, I will be interviewing a leading expert from various industries in order to discuss some of the major challenges and brainstorm how we can solve them. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome with Trials with Maya Z. Today, I'm especially excited because I have one of my old and good friends, Dana, here with me. Dana is the CEO of August Research an amazing clinical research organization, expert in conducting clinical trials, especially in Europe. And the reason why I invited Dana to to join me in this discussion about recruitment rate is because she's been one of the the people that that told me like amazing stories about clinical trials and how things actually are in reality. And I know that she has a lot of things to share with us and probably we won't have enough time share everything, but I really hope that she'll give us a sneak peek of what she experienced before. But Dana, first to you, can you please introduce yourself to to our audience? Sure. Um, Thanks, Maya, for the invitation to come on your podcast today. Um, It's exciting to talk about a topic that I'm definitely passionate about uh, with somebody who is equally enthusiastic (laughs) about improving clinical trials. So I am Dana Lefney-Jelska. I am the CEO and co-founder of August Research. Um, I have been running clinical trials in Europe for over 20 years now. Um, Obviously, you can tell from my accent that I am originally, uh, I'm from the United States, Um, but I moved to Bulgaria, where Maya is from, um, in the late 90s. I worked there for a few years and then started my first CRO uh, in in Europe um, back in the year 2000. so uh, my first company, we focused only on Central and Eastern Europe. We sold that business to a global CRO. Uh, and after a three-year non-compete, we uh, restarted as a small CRO working across Europe, really focused on providing um, excellent service uh, for small and medium-sized pharma and biotech companies. A real entrepreneur, Dana. <laughs> Thank you for this introduction. So Dana. To the key question here, how much can we trust recruitment rates when we plan clinical trials? What do you Mm -hmm. think? Um, Well, certainly it's a great question, and I think we could probably um, talk about this for hours. Um, (laughs) But I think um, when we talk about recruitment rates and when you talk about using historical rates to predict Mm -hmm. uh, future enrollment, um, it's certainly a, a tricky area. Um, and it's something that um, it's very hard to pin down. You know, there is a saying that if you've run one clinical trial, you've run one clinical trial. Um, mm. And I think there is a certain amount of truth to that um, because this is, although we have a lot of data, this is not, this is unfortunately not something that we can, um, we can't just replicate trials one after another. Um, they're run in a real world environment with a lot of external factors um, affecting um, enrollment and performance. So I think that when a clinical trial sponsor is starting to plan a trial and they want to predict their own enrollment rates, um, I think you really, the, the place to start before just trying to pull a study, a prior study off the shelf and, and just try to replicate that exactly, is really to look at um, the overall external factors that are going to affect the enrollment for your trial. 
Um, and the kind of the factors I mean here is sort of um, what are the what is the overall environment in the countries that you're potentially targeting? Because those are the sort of the big picture things that really drive underlying enrollment rates. And what I mean there are things like um, even basic things like the organization of the healthcare system of that country. Mm. Um, in countries where you know the government is providing the healthcare, there's um, certain assumptions that you can make about that country versus countries like the United States, where generally um, we're not having a you know government provided healthcare system. Um, those types of that type of setup affects things like um, obviously standard of care which is a big driver of selecting the appropriate countries for, for a trial. Um, if you have a trial that exceeds standard of care in certain countries, it could be extremely attractive and drive enrollment. If you have a study that is inferior to standard of care, look somewhere else. It's not mm. going to work. So, so standard of care is the kind of thing that is sort of baseline. You want to make sure that your study um, is, is attractive um, in that environment. There's also generalizations that you can make about um, certain regions, even within Europe. Um, we do a lot of work in Eastern Europe. And one um, structural difference between Eastern Europe and Western Europe is that in Eastern Europe, the majority of investigators are paid directly uh, a large portion of the investigator grant to their bank account. Um, and then a smaller portion is paid to the hospital. So oftentimes that split could be 80% to the investigator, 20% to the site. Whereas in Western Europe or the US, 100% um, of the grant is paid directly to the hospital and the hospital decides how they allocate that money and what they will compensate the doctors for their time on that trial. Um, and obviously paying people directly for their work um, oftentimes translates into more work, more attention, and more commitment um, to that project. For trials that are compatible with standard of care and the environment of Central and Eastern Europe, that drives a lot of the differences in, that we see in enrollment rates. So that's the other kind of factor that you should consider when you're targeting countries, because it really can, um, that would really make a difference. So I think those are the kind of big picture things that you can look at when you first just start to consider countries and even look at countries where a trial was run before. Um, but then you have to look at, um, as I said, sort of standard of care, but then you also need to look out onto the horizon about how that standard of care might be changing. And mm. I know, Maya, that you you actually have products that address this topic about yeah. reimbursement rates for different drugs. I was actually um, speaking about that with lots of people that it's super interesting when you plan your clinical trial that might be a couple of months, even a year before you even start. And then by that time, the landscape can change. So we're even rethinking our products because we have this software for planning of trials. But we, we think, how can we actually make sure that people know how the landscape changes so that when the time comes to start, the people behind the clinical operations, people and project managers, they know how, it, how much is different than when they did the plan. So, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Relevant. Yeah. I mean, and it can, it can change dramatically. We have plenty of studies where even during the conduct of a trial, um, a comparator may be reimbursed um, where it yeah. wasn't previously. And then the trial becomes, um, you know, completely unattractive in a certain country and even potentially unethical because there's a better treatment on the market and there's no reason to put patients in um, experimental treatment. So um, 
It is a real issue. And certainly sponsors know generally who the competition and the um, environment of their own drugs, but it's something that needs to be watched very closely, um, especially in areas such as oncology, where you do have a lot of um, expensive treatments, um, which the reimbursement um, and the access can be changing all the time. So when should you actually consider recruitment rates? Well, I mean, as a CRO, we have to consider them right up front um, because obviously all clients want a budget and they want to know the timeline. Usually clients want to know what is the timeline for completing my study. So we always have to make some assumptions. Um, and we try to do that through, um, as I said, sort of looking at the, the background situation, but also doing a lot of detailed feasibility um, because the things that in a affect ongoing uh, recruitment all the time obvious things are competitive trials um, yeah. that might be running in the same indication and um, uh, or competitive trials that may have also different reimbursement rates or just a more attractive protocol design. Yeah. But that is something that can obviously be um, flushed out by speaking to investigators about what other trials they've committed to in the next, let's say, 12 months. Um, if the trial design would be attractive to them compared to other studies that might be running at their site. Um, so that is information that can certainly be um, identified through conversations with sites. Um, but, but that is something that certainly has to be done uh, on that level. You don't know until you speak to investigators directly, you don't know what other trials that they have been contacted about, that they're considering. Um, and investigators, um, Certainly, key opinion leaders who are contacted all the time, you know, make their own decisions about why they may or may not want to participate in a trial. They may have had a bad experience with a sponsor in the past. They may just not like the drug in the trial. Um, it may be too much work. Maybe they're short-staffed and they want to pick a trial that has fewer procedures or a shorter time frame. And that's why if you run one trial, run one trial, everything um, needs to be considered individually for what it is and and have those conversations to ideally identify investigators who are excited, motivated, and who want to participate in your trial. Because mm -hmm. you can tell right off the bat when you're pulling teeth from investigators, if they're not really committed to the study mm -hmm. during the feasibility phase, they're probably not going to yeah, do a no, lot no. during the enrollment. Yeah. And those are things that you can't see that from a list of names of investigators. You have to speak to them um, to find out. I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you find this topic relevant, you'll find it helpful to book a demo with our team on trialhub.com. Since 2019, we've supported more than 3,000 clinical trials with country, site, and patient feasibility. We'd love to show you how and help you get your trial right from the start. And now, back to my guests. So if I'm to summarize, Recruitment rate, we, we all know it's a must. Like you need to have a recruitment rate in order to calculate the budget at the end of the day. But in order to understand whether you should be more optimistic or the other way around, you should pay attention to these other factors like competition, like standard of care, uh, like the, the landscape, like all of these things that contributes to, um, to the final recruitment rate at the end of the day and make sure that you have a realistic expectation uh, of what, uh, what should be the speed of your of your clinical trial? There's if I could just add one thing, I think being realistic for sure, but I think it's also important to build in some sort of risk management into that, um, because even when you're being realistic, you may think that you're you've taken all your information and you know you're not 
as you said, not being overly optimistic. But as we said, still things can change. You know, wars start and and countries you expected to participate in your trial just are not available anymore. So so even when you've come up with sort of your best case, it's always good to still apply some risk management um, analysis to that and still consider if there are other things you could do to better guarantee meeting that timeline, whether it's adding in a few extra countries or, um, you know, adding a few extra sites in, in a country just to make sure that you have some cushion and that you're mm. not relying on everything going right, even in your, in your scenario. Um, because obviously there are shocks to, and things can change, you yeah. know, external shocks that you can't predict. So if I'm to translate this message to biotech uh, founders and like biotech managers, uh, make sure that you have some extra budget uh, and don't always pick the, the lowest budget offer, but like pay attention to the one that really makes sense. And I guess uh, a recommendation for when it comes to this interaction between sponsors and CROs is just be transparent. Things happen. So um, yeah, we need to be prepared for all sorts of situations. I want to, uh, though, bring you back to, to the conversation around the sites and the keeping leaders. You said something that I absolutely believe, and that, that is that if an investigator really believes in your study and wants to be a part of your study, you can tell, definitely. But one of the things that a lot of our customers are asking are, for example, site-level recruitment rate, because kind of like it's perceived that it's closer to the reality, let's say, to the reality if its site is going to perform or not. So what's your opinion? Like how mm -hmm. can you trust a little bit more when we speak about site level recruitment rates? The challenge with site level recruitment rates um, is whether or not in your conversations with an investigator, or with the team, they have really read very carefully the protocol before giving their, their own estimates. And if they really understand um, the requirements of the trial, because the Biggest disappointment, and it, I mean, it happens all over the place, is that a site says we'll enroll one patient per month, that'd be 12 patients a year. And then when it we, gets to the site initiation visit and we start discussing, and then they um, actually finally understand the trial, then they tell you eight reasons why they're not even going to do half of that enrollment. Um, because I think a lot of times, you know, we, we try to make things easy for sites. We don't want to send them 15 page questionnaires about the trial. So we try to summarize, you know, inclusion, exclusion, and the things that we think look most difficult. Um, but a lot of times if um, it's really important to, to really focus the investigators on the challenges of the trial when you're doing, when you're conducting feasibility um, and not just what's detractive about the trial, um, oh, because yeah. that's where a lot of the uh, disappointments, misunderstandings, and then uh, hurdles uh, appear later um, when they finally really? really understand what types of um, procedures they need to do, how much time things will take, um, and then they're already disappointed that they agreed to do the trial at that price, and now they now they understand what it really is, and then everyone's you know now their excitement has turned to disappointment. Yeah, um, true. So that's so during those initial feasibility conversations, in order to have much to have more reliable information. The best way to do it is really to have an actual conversation and not just rely on written information that you send because you just don't know how much people read. Yeah. Uh, if you really want to be able to trust those numbers, then it's, I think the, the way to do it um, is to really have an actual conversation 
um, with a principal investigator and, as I said, highlight the challenges um, of the protocol and really try to push back. Because generally speaking, we usually try to, you know, push back on the initial numbers that a site gives us. Some CROs use a shorthand of we just cut it in half or whatever, but. Um, (laughs) yeah, but, but I think actually having, spending the time and, and time is money, but it's worth it to invest that time on the front end, to have a real conversation with a site and understand and and make sure they understand the study so that the numbers they're providing are reliable. I think that, um, having some historical numbers for how, uh, the site has performed before, does help you. I agree very much with uh, uh, all these people that I've been discussing this with. But at the same time, I think that you still need this conversation uh, because um, if you were successful yesterday, it may be for various reasons. And that doesn't mean you're going to be successful tomorrow as well. And I love what you said. Uh, You have to sense that this investigator is really excited about this project and you know why, but also they understand what are, what's behind the clinical trial, what are the challenges and make mm-hmm. sure that you address that up front. And the same with when, when sponsors and CROs are discussing the clinical trial, are they both aware of what are the opportunities, but also the challenges and how they are going to overcome this together? Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could say on that point, we, we have worked on a study for a small sponsor who felt that their study, their protocol was very similar to a study that a large pharma had run previously that had finished. And they had the information about, you know, which sites participated in that and they could see how the trial enrolled. And um, so they really expected that their study would run the same way. And they had expectations of very good enrollment from particular sites in the UK, it was in this case. Um, And uh, they basically tried to replicate the study um, and they got almost zero enrollment in the UK. And in the prior study, they had done something around 500 patients. And actually what happened was in the time between the first trial and the second trial, that principal investigator retired. Ah, And the people who came, who took over the site. Different team. Totally different people. That's a great story. Can you tell me another story, actually? Another story where you were misled by the recruitment rates and it turned out that it's not going to be what you expected. Well, unfortunately, that does happen pretty often. Um, actually, um, we we just completed a study recently where, um, and this is also, I think it, it goes to both sides of being sort of upfront, um, a very complicated study um, uh, with dialysis patients. The study was looking at different types of lesions. Um, and the protocol was written in a way that the investigators estimated the patients that they had. They believed they had the patients. Um, but when it came to actually running the protocol, um, the sponsor, when they saw images, they rejected a lot of the patients as that the, that their condition was not severe enough. And um, it led to certainly some of the sites were frustrated. They felt that the the patients complied with the protocol and they wanted to give them the treatment. But the but the sponsor actually um, had different criteria for judging those images. Mm-hmm. And so it ended up that the enrollment was not um, what was expected. Um, as well, the sites were frustrated because they thought they had more patients. Yeah. But the fact is that a lot of times we see that type of situation where protocols are sometimes not, um, they don't necessarily have the last detail of precision and um, expect one thing out of the 
patients are the trial and investigators read the protocol maybe in a more broad way. And then there becomes a mismatch about. um, So so that is one situation we had recently. We also sometimes have cases where, um, you know, obviously inclusion exclusion criteria can have a range. There could be ranges of, you know, depending on what what type of um, lab assessments are used to enter the trial. You know, in, for in the inclusion exclusion criteria, there's generally some sort of ranges, and sometimes um, investigators will put patients who are very close to the edges of that, and their feeling is, well, these patients meet the criteria, and then the sponsor may say, oh, but we didn't really want those patients; we wanted, you know, more severe mm-hmm. patients, or we wanted, but and the investigators will oftentimes push back and say, but the protocol, they comply with the protocol. A lot of times that will lead to a protocol amendment where a sponsor realizes that their protocol wasn't really necessarily that precise, um, perhaps, or they realize that the, they, they actually do need a different pa- patient population than they originally thought. So um, there's lots yeah. of challenges, even once you get started, to, yeah. um, because it's really rare that a protocol uh, would zero amendments mm-hmm. you know well, we all know the numbers but amendment obviously your recruitment is yeah. probably going to yeah. change in some well that uh, explains again and, and just uh failing to plan is planning to fail and maybe we should spend a little bit more time to do our homework prior to starting the, the clinical trial one thing that i hate about the industry is exactly like this like at the very early days of communication between clinical research organizations and sponsor, this RFP process, it has like these such short deadlines. And these deadlines are usually required by the sponsors, by the way. And that's not in their favor. Actually, they're not in their favor at all because the less time um, you have on assessing a protocol, the clinical research landscape, the more mistakes you can do. And some of the stories that you're now um, uh, like uh, sharing with us, they actually describe exactly the situation. There, I, I'm sure there are just so many other stories uh, to tell. Um, I wonder, is there anything, like, was there any case where you knew about their historical re- recruitment rates, but you knew that that's not, that's not going to happen, and you started a trial and you were, you were proven right? Mm-hmm. We don't want to be proven yeah. right when we can exactly. prove the sponsor wrong. You know, we try to counsel them on mm-hmm. the front end about you know, um, if we think it's unrealistic. Um, but I, I have a study right now, actually, um, where um, we were brought into the trial later and the sites were working directly with the sponsor and the sites gave them incredibly high enrollment figures, um, which as a CRO, just understanding how sites work, I knew but, that yeah. it could, they could only do a fraction mm-hmm. of that. Um, but the sponsor believe them because they're the principal investigator and they know their patients and um, they set up the trial with expectations to get those patients. And, um, you know, we don't want to be the pessimistic ones. We don't want to be the people who are, you know, um, not being up to more enthusiastic to try to help reach these goals. Of course we want to, but, um, you know, we, we try to explain to sponsors that sometimes sites will, make calculations, they use very deductive numbers. Like, um, you know, if it's asking, how many patients do you treat per month? You know, starting with a big funnel. And then how many patients do you think are applicable for this trial? How many could you enroll? It sounds very logical to make that sort of funnel. 
But a lot of times there's too many that drop patients out and some of them we've talked about. But a lot of times nobody wants to say, I have 300 patients and I'm going to enroll two. That sounds ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But the fact is the amount of effort that and the amount of staff they have to put the patients in the trial, even if they had 300, still may only be two yeah. because it just takes a lot of time. So sometimes you can be, you know, sites can be misled by looking at this top line number. But the fact is, as in, in, in other part of it, sites are so uh, strapped for resources yeah. right now. So even if they technically have the patients, they don't have time to consent those patients, talk to them about the mm -hmm. trial, and then, and then uh, requirements. Yeah. So it can be a very dangerous way to kind of um, to make estimates. But, you, but a lot of times even sites with, will, on their own, will kind of forget about all the work and forget about um, what really needs to be done. They just think, yeah, I have the patients. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, we, we have a situation like that now, which is obviously it's, um, you know, uh, not a happy one. We're, we have added a lot more countries to try to bring up the enrollment. But sometimes it's, you can see right from the get go that um, it's things just not possible. And let's not forget at the end of the day, it's within the site's experience and efforts and resources to get the patients. But it's also the patient's choice, right? And sometimes that's, that cannot be easily predicted, especially if you haven't done a proper job understanding the patient journey, the patient needs and, and challenges and barriers and all sorts of things. And I like to say that clinical trials are like black swans. There is one great book by uh, Nassim Taleb. It's called Bla The Black Swan. And it has so many similarities to clinical trials. It's just like sometimes black swans can occur when, when, when you conduct clinical trial um, and you can't predict that. The only thing you can do mm -hmm. is just um, do, like, be flexible. And with you, Dana, we've discussed it so many times that the key to success to every clinical research organization is exactly being flexible and try to change your strategy, even if you have to do it in the middle of the trial, but just follow your goal and be flexible and yeah try to be transparent with all the stakeholders. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you said, people see a black swan and think, wow, well, I'm going to be the next mm -hmm. one. But it doesn't. Yeah, you don't know. <laughs> well, Dana, that, that's been a, a really insightful and interesting conversation. I hope that everyone really enjoyed our conversation. And if you want to continue this discussion with Dana, you can reach her out uh, on LinkedIn and find out more, more about August research and all the incredible stories that you guys have. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dana. Thanks for the opportunity, Maya. It was great to see you. Hope you enjoyed listening to Trials with Maya Z. If you're interested to hear more about how clinical trials can serve patients globally, subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.